Well, good morning. Welcome to Snowmageddon Part 2. It is coming for us, but not until later, so we'll, we'll be good. So um, we're going to dive in, but before we dive in, people will be coming in. Uh, you, you have to have a Bible or an electronic Bible. So you can have either, but for this morning, for you to follow along, you, you should have a Bible in hand, or even if you don't have one in hand and you really want to use your phone app or something, that's totally fine. But uh, we're going to take a more hands-on approach, if you will. So the reason for that is last week we started um, looking at the texts as uh, kind of just like a practical, like you try it kind of way. And so Steve brought us through into that. And we have this week and then Old Testament stuff and then next week in the New Testament stuff. But I really want it for, for you to understand. Last week I was thinking as we've taught this class, like this is where it gets really practical. Why have we done this class on biblical theology why have we taken weeks to look at typology and theme and all that stuff? It's the purpose so that when you open the Bible, you can look at a text and see, wow, this aims at Jesus, and, and this points us there, and I can understand uh, the theme and, and some of the typology and the foreshadowing stuff. And so today we're going to be really practical in how we do that, and in maybe even a looser format of, of what we do, and hopefully have time for you guys to try it on your own as we just work on that as a guided process um, through the first two texts. So with that, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, your grace. Thank you for this time of just gathering and learning your word more effectively, uh, how to use it, how to open it, and how it guides us to, to Christ. And Father, help us as we learn how to do that, and help us to know the importance of that so that we would handle your word correctly. And we just pray that we would honor you now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, have a Bible in hand. There are handouts back there, pens, that whole thing. And the goal really today is to look at three Bible texts. And then we'll take the first two, we'll go through them together. And we'll take the third one and kind of let you try it. And so hopefully I'll leave enough room and time for that. But um, but again, the purpose of this class, for me last week, it was kind of coming together, even though I knew like we were teaching biblical theology, there's a lot of background. Like this is where it really counts to come and to be able to open the Bible and say, like, I can understand what, how this text points me to Jesus and that stuff. And a lot of times, I'll just admit, myself included at times, although I can't really get away with this in my particular role, we're pretty lazy with the Bible in that way. Sometimes we, we open the Bible and we're like, I don't know if I can really place it in a, like a time, especially the Old Testament. Do I now have to be an Old Testament historian and a historian general to know about you know, Assyria and the kingdoms? And I would say it'd be really good to dive into that because it starts to make sense as you read the New Testament, what was happening in the Old Testament and how, again, it points to Jesus. This example, uh, I'll fly through this, um, just an example of the book of Hebrews uh, if you go through the chapters all the way to the uh, chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith, um, chapter 1 in Hebrews, the law points to Jesus. Chapter 2, you'll read about the angels, points to Jesus. Chapter 3, you read about Moses in Hebrews, points to Jesus. Chapter 4, the promised land points to Jesus. Sabbath points to Jesus. In chapter 5, you don't have to be in Hebrews for this, but he talks about the high priests pointing to Jesus. In chapter 7, Melchizedek points to Jesus. Chapter 8, the tabernacle, guess what it does? Points to Jesus, that's right. And chapter 9, sacrifices, 
point to Jesus. By the time you're done with chapter 11, you realize the entire history of Israel does what? All right, you're paying attention. Woohoo! All right. So here's what you're going to do. Uh, we have in your little handout there um, a three texts. We, we talk about the questions that we're going to answer in each of the texts. Uh, on your handout, it says the four questions that you ask. And this is people study the Bible in different ways, and that's not entirely what this is about. But whenever you look at a text, you should be able to ask these four questions. What's the point? So every Sunday that I preach, I open the Bible and I look at the text and I have to come up with at least one main point of the passage in every part of Scripture. What's God saying here? And sometimes we can read those and get a bunch of things, but when you look at the whole of the text, what's the main point? Second question we'll ask is where does the text fall under the biblical storyline? The whole point of this particular class is so that when you open up and you read a particular passage, you're able to say, hey, I know how that verse or that chapter fits in the book, and I know how that book fits in the Bible. So you have this whole storyline in view. And then we look at how does the text point to Christ? We looked at some of those tools, typology, theme, storyline, God, man, Christ response. Um, and then this is just a helpful tool. Always look for that New Testament link. Who has a study Bible? Like, anybody have a study Bible? Okay, study Bibles are really helpful for that. Most of us have, even without study Bibles, cross-references. It's always helpful when you study the Bible to look for that New Testament link and, and to go there. Again, that's a time thing, and sometimes we're lazy when we read the Scriptures. But if you want to read the Scriptures to know the Scriptures, then you're going to take time to like, wow, I see that cross-reference is in the New Testament. Similarly, when Jesus is speaking in the Gospels, a lot of times he's quoting Isaiah or he's going and he's quoting something from the Old Testament. And when you go back and read that, it starts to make sense. You can give Jesus, uh, or you don't give Jesus anything really, um, but you can, you can add context to what he's saying because, oh, see, it starts to make sense. We're looking for modern day application, but if Jesus is talking to those people at that time, what are they thinking as he's talking? Ah, that makes sense that he was referencing Israel in this way. And so they would have known that being closer to that and learning that. And so we have a little bit in, I would say a lot bit, of ignorance in our culture, just about Israel in general. So anything that you can glean um, and then dive into the New Testament for. So Proverbs 2, open up to Proverbs 2. We're going to do this twice, go through this exercise, and then when we get to Nehemiah, I'm going to let you guys do it yourself. Um, and so I'm going to read it. We'll read it together, Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. Those of you that, that came in, I said you have to have a Bible or an electronic version in order to do this correctly. So this is what Proverbs 2, 1 through 6 says. It says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. All right, so you read that text, and it's in your, your daily Bible reading, and you have the time to absorb this. First question on the table, what is the point of the text? Wisdom, thank you. So you read these six verses like, you're, you're praying and seeking God. What are, you, what are you going to speak to me today? 
You're, you're landing on wisdom. It's pretty obvious, obvious there. But what is wisdom? Look at the text. What is wisdom? I'll give you a hint. Look at verse 6. God gives wisdom. What does it say next? So we know that wisdom has to do with knowledge and understanding. Some of you, I heard another thing. So you say, all right, if God wants me to have wisdom, he wants me to have knowledge and understanding. If you go back one more verse, somebody had said this, I think, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If you're searching for wisdom, and this is the point of this passage, then the text itself is going to, as you like chew over these verses, you'll see, oh, it involves knowledge and understanding, and it involves fearing God. And if you think about that and you're starting to understand, again, when I do Bible study, all I do is read a text and ask a bunch of questions. So if I say, what is wisdom? See if I can find in the text, knowledge and understanding. Also fear of God. Well, what is fear of God? Does that mean I'm afraid of God? No, if you know the Old Testament and the language use of that word, it's about what? About honor, reverence, worship. So I fear God in that way. And if I fear God in that way, if I worship, then I'll want to know him and understand him better. Go up to the very first verse. What else do we know about wisdom? Yeah, it comes from his words. And it's specifically my son, and we'll get to the Solomon reference here, but a father's instruction, right? So if you want wisdom... And this is a thing in our culture. People don't really want wisdom a lot, especially young generation of, if you have young kids, you know, like, I try, I'm, I'm going to tell you what to do. Yeah, I think I'll just go learn my own way. This is listening to your father's instruction. And so that is part of wisdom. I'll gain knowledge and understanding. So that's the main point of the passage. Now, where does this text, and this is crucial for understanding, where does this text fall in the biblical storyline? Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. Why is this man who was Solomon? David's son, right. And so this falls into this storyline of knowing that Solomon was David's son who was this special set-aside king of Israel, that he would rule the nations. He was specially anointed by God. And then Solomon himself was promised what? Wisdom from God. And so you start to understand, all right, God chose David to be the king of Israel David is kind of a forerunner to Christ, and so Jesus comes along in the line of David, and it's David's son here who's going to rule and and give wisdom, the wisest man on the earth. That's kind of in that kingdom era. And then you get to question number three. So I know Solomon wrote this. How does this text point us to Christ? The word, excellent. Other things? Truth or wisdom. So the first thing, yeah, by nature of the authorship, that David-Solomon link, the kingship, we're already pointed to Jesus, right? When you, when you see that. But the second thing is that Jesus himself is the word. He's wisdom. It, he's, he's very manifestation of God's word. And you see that in his own life as he talks. Let me read a couple verses here leading up. I'm going to go through these really fast. Um, da, 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 Isaiah 11, 1, Therefore there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, spirit of counsel of his might, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, prophesying about Jesus. Isaiah 50, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear. Turning to Luke 3 then all the way up there, and the child grew, Jesus became strong and filled with what? Wisdom. And then in verse 49 later, he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? He was always, as a young boy, learning and understanding. Matthew 12, Jesus observed that the queen of Sheba might have sought to hear Solomon's wisdom, but now one greater than Solomon was here. And then in Matthew 13, Jesus taught in the synagogue 
And the people asked, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus being the very manifestation, the logos, the word becoming flesh, he is wisdom. And so it automatically points us to Jesus. So when you read this, this is the link, right? I'm reading this and it's an Old Testament passage. It's about knowledge and understanding and I should glean all those things, but it should help me as I follow Christ. I should want I, I, I don't know how you could read this text and not want to read everything that Jesus said when, when he walked in the earth and, and the gospel. So if you're su- truly searching for wisdom. And so the fourth question that you asked then is, how do I read this text through Christ? What does it mean for us? Yeah, like I, this is a whole of life thing. So if we talk about walking with Christ and abiding in him, this is the whole of my life falling under this banner of honoring and obeying Jesus. I understand that if he's the true source of wisdom that God has brought to this earth, I ought to know him and relate to him and walk to him and take everything, every decision that I make before him, that I should fear God in that way and desire. Now, of course, this has application to Bible study in general. We want to know the word. If we can't know the word and the commandments, we can't really truly obey and follow Jesus. But we also should glean wisdom and understanding in many other ways. I think this does have like life application. Be a learner. I meet people all the time that says, well, I don't read books. I just, I'm not a reader. You should be a learner. And if reading helps you learn, which I think it's pretty good source to do that, you should learn. And so I do think it has life application. Gain wisdom. Gain a bunch of it from everywhere. People that learn stuff all the time, how to do things, know things, That's wisdom. That's a good thing. And it helps you informatively not make decisions out of your own capacity, but especially when it comes to to Christ, I'll seek him for his wisdom. And so main point, falling under the storyline, how do I see Jesus in that? And then how do I relate that rightly to Christ? All right. Got it? Isaiah 13. This is going to get a little harder because it's in the Old Testament. And then you start to think about like, oh boy, now I have to know like more Old Testament history stuff. But this is a tool to help you. Um, Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 11. Then we'll do 13, 17, 19 through 21. And then skip ahead towards the beginning of chapter 14. Everybody there? Isaiah, middle of the Bible, pretty much right in the center there. Is everybody there? Okay, this is what it says. Um, This is a judgment of Babylon. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw... On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. Can I just time out here? This is about the part in your Bible reading that you're getting really confused, right? I got some, I'm just being honest. Most of us, we see it in the Bible reading. We, we want to be faithful to the calendar, like I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And right when we get to verse two, we start to go, what does this have to do with my life? I'm just being honest. That's why we're doing this. So this bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms of the nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. That would be something to underline. 
a destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, feeble and every heart, human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce and anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be at dark, dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for the iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of, er of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Skip down to verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts. Down to verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Skipping down to 19 through 22. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor of the pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is at is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. And then the first two verses of the next chapter. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's hand as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Are you good? Yeah? See, this is the part when you read the Old Testament that people get really frustrated because they say, I think I'll just read a New Testament passage from Paul on my life and how it applies like something real tangible. You read something like this and you get confused because you don't really understand what God is saying. And yet if you look real close, you can see some things that we ought to understand. Personally, if I'm going to a text like this, I really want to make sure I know Jesus, right? Like, I mean, again, if you look at this, it's not just about like the content of, do I have to know what was going on in Babylon, Babylon at the time? There's a larger meaning. If the scriptures speak and they're relevant for our context and culture, it must be relevant for me now. A, to understand the main point, which we'll talk about in a second, but then how does this point me to Jesus and apply? So what would the main point of this passage be in Isaiah 13? Anybody want to take a shot? So this is about judgment. That's why I said, underline that, the day of the Lord is near. And it said it, that was in verse 6, and then it said it again there in uh, verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. So when you read a text like this, yes, it was coming to Babylon, but Babylon represents something. The, the day of the Lord is coming near. There's judgment. Babylon is representative of this nation of complete arrogance towards God. If you know the storyline of Babylon, you know that Babylon, Tower of Babel from the beginning, it's just been linked with what he mentions in verse 11. I will put an end of the pomp of the arrogant. Like Babylon is that. It's this nation here that like is totally against God. And a main point of this passage could essentially be, if I know that judgment is coming, I must know that I can never put my hope in any nation in that way 
other than knowing Christ himself. Like, I need to know where I stand with Jesus. I can never hope in a nation like Babylon, who presented itself as very hopeful, right, in terms of the arrogance of their own pride and just acting the way they did. And so this main point, judgment's coming. The day of the Lord is near. Happened for them, and it's going to happen again. Where does it fall in the biblical storyline? Does anybody know? Yeah, so the two kingdoms of Israel, the southern one and the northern one. The southern one were in Judah here in about the 8th century. And again, this is why if you have a study Bible, you can kind of understand the historical context there. And Assyria is a threat, but Babylon is this symbol of a wicked culture. All right, so you have to know where that falls. Again, in the way that the Israelites are, are moving here and God is wanting to make his judgment very serious and known that you need to worship and honor me. How does it point to Christ? I think we've said it. Jesus is coming, right? The day of the Lord is near. So Christ's first coming was a proclamation of salvation. So when we read the Christmas story, and then we read Jesus' life on earth, and all that he spoke, he too talked about like how, he, how one could be saved in him, but then talked about how I'm coming back, right? His second coming is all about judgment. And so if his first coming is about salvation, second one is all about pronouncing that judgment once and for all. Even as I read Isaiah 13, do I know Christ personally? Do I understand that? And we shouldn't fear in that if you know Jesus, but you should know what's coming is judgment on the wicked. And you have to be ready for that. And Jesus talks about that in the later chapters of Matthew. And he's saying like, this is going to be what this looks like on this day. This is what it looks like, and it's destroying the nations who have not pleased God at all, and it's complete judgment of the wicked. So, by the time you get to question four, how do I read this through Christ in an application kind of way? Anybody want to take a shot at it? There's an obvious one, right? I kind of mentioned it. He'll judge the nations, other things. There's hope. That's a great one. You know that in Christ you have security, right? Like, if you understand Jesus is coming to judge the nations, I'm secure in that. But I think it goes one further in that line. I cannot put my hope in anything in this world, right? Like, while I have hope in Christ, I also cannot give my hope to anything in this world. There's no salvation outside of Christ. And so if I read Isaiah 13 and I look at my own life, let's just say I look at my own life as an American when I flip on the news and just see the nonsense of our government, like, is that where I put my hope? And if you think about that practically, that's like right Washington, D.C., far away, but we're American citizens, and so we really, while we think about that, our nation's falling apart, God's going to judge this, but I can't put my hope in that. But I also can't put my hope in anything else external to Christ, like whether that's a job or security. Again, this points you to Jesus in so many ways where it says, I can't trust anybody except for Christ himself, the capital J judge. And am I ready for that day? And I think that's the, the link that points you to Jesus that, again, do you, are you kind of connecting how this could be fruitful in the Old Testament if you do it this simple way? And that's why we wanted to do this. Like, look for these themes, look for these questions, look for these ideas, do this format, and it helps you understand the Old Testament, what's happening there, but it helps you understand who Jesus is that we should walk by faith in that. So we have some time left. I want you, I know we're cruising through these. I want you to flip over to the book of Nehemiah. 
So it is the first in the order of the Bible. This is like before Proverbs here, kind of like a third of the way, maybe a quarter of the way through, if you have a Bible in hand. Right after Ezra, Chronicles, before Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Nehemiah chapter 1. All right, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to read verses 1 through 4, and then 8 and 9, 2, 4 through 5, and then you can, even though it says in your handout there that it goes ahead and looks at um, chapters 3 through 6, you don't have to read chapters 3 through 6, but look at verse um, 27 in chapter 12, and then verse 30 in chapter 12. All right, I want you to take just some time, I want you to read the text, all right, but here's what I want you to do before you read the text. I want you to just pray and just ask God, would you just speak to I think this is really important. You do it every time here, but you should do it every time you open the Bible. Ask God to give you wisdom and knowledge, and I want you to do this, and then I want you to read the text, and if you want to stop and underline, we'll give you some time to do that, and then you're going to read the text, and then I want you to go through these four questions. What's the main point of this text? So after you do that, I'll write down the main point of the text, and then go to the next one. What is the, how does this fall in the biblical storyline? Write that down in your notes, and then the next question was it, um, how does it speak of Christ? And then the last one, and four, how does it point, or the application part of Jesus, all right? All right, so you, you open up the Old Testament passage, and then, like, you're forced to, like, read this, because we come to Sunday school, and you're, like, it's early, and you're cold, and you're forced to do this, and your mind's not, like, thinking straight, but this is the tool, right? You want to understand as best as you can. Now, in an overview way, what's happening with the book of Nehemiah. So we come, we show up at Sunday school when we're children, right? And we look, Nehemiah, we're going to learn about Nehemiah today. What's going on here? Nehemiah's task was to do what? Build a wall. All right. So, all right. Modern day, following Jesus. You, you know, you see what I'm going? Like, you're tracking with me. All right. Why is this important to me? Like, Nehemiah was going to build a wall. Great. All right. But what's the main point of this particular passage, this idea, this whole, really the whole book of Nehemiah, but with what you read, what's the point of what's happening here? Anybody take a shot at it? All right, gathering the exiles, all things will be made new. God fulfilled his promise. There's a bunch of lessons. I like that one myself. Peter, did you say something? Salvation. All of you wrote down all of that stuff, right? So think about it. God, God, wants to have Nehemiah build this. If you, We'll get to the second part. I guess I want to jump ahead to where does it fall in line. But his covenant people here need to be restored, right? They need to understand his blessings and presence. And the actual tangible wall is crucial in this. When people build a wall in the ancient world, that was... Now, this is not doing this politically right now with the whole wall thing in America, right? But it's on our minds. But when you build a wall, it protects especially God's people were always counseled to keep to themselves, if you were, and worship God. And foreigners and relationships that way, God was always real protective of his people. He said, I want you to live and dwell in this way, protect yourselves from the enemy, the wicked coming in and all this intermarriage stuff. And he's always challenging people and you're subject without a wall to every band of traveling robbers and murderers and thieves, all that stuff. So there's this idea of Nehemiah tasks for God's covenant people. God has been faithful, promises, He's with them, and he wants to rebuild what has been broken. Now, storyline, where does this fall? What's happening? It is actually said in the first three verses there. This is important for the story, for us to understand it. What's happening here? Post-exile. So it says right there in verse 3, right? 
uh, or right before that. And I asked them in verse 2 concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And so they're coming back, right? This is post-exile. We just read about Babylon. Now Babylon has fallen to the Persians, and this wall has been destroyed, and God's people are starting to rebuild here. The exiles are coming back. Nehemiah and Ezra kind of sit in this in-between point of the exile and Christ's coming. So that's where they fall in the biblical storyline. God's people have been exiled. They're starting to come back. They're, they're, God's covenant is over his people still, and yet they're waiting for the Messiah. And so as I'm reading Nehemiah, I'm thinking, all right, God's like restoring them. Now, Fiona had a great extra little thing there. I love the story of Nehemiah because they built this wall, God's covenant people, but who paid for it? Yeah, like the king. And the king's, this is a principle of like the king's heart is in the Lord's hands. Like God can use, and he does this in Christian missionary activity all over the world. People who do not honor God and worship God often fund God's activity in the world. It's amazing. If you've gone on a mission trip and you've raised funds for that, you know that sometimes God uses non-believers to supply the need for his work. And this is another evidence when Nehemiah goes, because of his position, he's able to go to the king and God's put him at that place and that time and he's able to fund this thing. And the king's like, well, yeah, king doesn't honor God, but he'll fund this work because God is on the throne. And so that's where it falls in the storyline. Now, how does it point to Christ? This one's a little trickier at first, and I'll kind of guide us through a different approach, but how does it point to Christ? Time out from that a little bit, from the actual storyline. I think we don't trust God enough at times when we go to the Bible. We trust ourselves too much to understand it, and I do really feel like that's important when you go to the Bible, and sometimes we go there in a rush. God, like, I really need you to speak to me, and God says, do you really want to? I think he kind of heart checks us, right? And when you ask, God reveals himself. He just shows us, and so there's case in point. Other things, anybody put there? How does it point to Christ? I mean, I know you don't want to compete with that right now. Yep, so restoring that. Now, it's interesting because if you want to know, like, how does it point to Christ, there's ways you can do that. You can think about that. You have to look at maybe what, if, if you continue to read, you look at ways that maybe walls fail. Now, what can walls not do? Think about the way that this wall failed, Israel. What's the problem still? And, and this was touched on, what? Right, so walls can keep people out, but the children of Israel still dwell within, right? Like the heart is still a problem. So you can keep people out by putting up walls, but you still have a problem inside. If you read the rest of Nehemiah and you find that in the reforms, like they're not giving the, the temple tax, and they're not doing certain things. And, and it's like pointing back to this fact that your heart is still a problem. You can build all the walls you want. You can keep the bad guys out. But we, we learn this in David's life, right? Like he has a mighty kingdom, and he looks across that wall. His heart is still the problem, right? When kings go off to war, David's like committing adultery because his heart is still the problem. He's lazily like enjoying the blessings of his kingdom, chilling inside his palace, and his heart is still an issue. And that in itself points to Jesus, like Jesus is coming to fulfill 
that portion, that which cannot be fulfilled any other way in any other um, way we can do it to build a wall or whatever we do. If you look in verse 9 of chapter 1 there, go real quick. Nehemiah is repeating this from Moses, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through your out, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my people dwell there. Again, re-quoting this Moses, like, do my commandments. But we know when Jesus comes, he says, even if you do them all, you still need a Savior, right? And so he's gathering these people inside the wall, and he says, the wall is good for protection, as my laws are good for protection. But what God wants to do is what he does in Christ to write the law on what? Their hearts. And it's an internal thing. So that last portion, what do I read this? How do I read this through Christ? What does it mean for us? What are some applications that you can draw? Pray. That's a great one. Pray first. It's another one. So sometimes we overthink the Bible. I think Kathy's word to hinge on protection. Like sometimes you just have to like think about what is Nehemiah? Like what we learn the thing about the hearts. And again, I realize some of you are sitting here going, well, I didn't get any of this stuff. Like I'm not that insightful. Like walls protect, right? But if we know that the problem still was within, like we cannot rely on anything in this world to protect us other than Christ himself. And that points us to the security we have in the new Jerusalem like thrusts us into the future of like, Jesus is my hope, my confidence, my protection now. My heart is the issue. Christ is the hope for that issue. And he alone will protect and guide me in everything. And that's really what it is. Like we can look to Christ. We don't, like walls don't do it. Gated communities don't do it. Our bank accounts don't do it. Our health doesn't do it. All of those protections of the world that you and I run to in security isn't going to cut it unless our heart is right with Jesus. And so that's what you get when you study a passage, when you understand it, like running out of time here, and when you say, God, I want you to speak these truths to me. What does Isaiah have to do with my life? What does Nehemiah have to do with my life? There's a bunch of tools and lessons, but we learn like moralistic ones don't cut it. You want to be aimed at Jesus. Is my heart good? Is it right with Christ? Do I know that all my protections are from him alone, and anything in this world is going to crumble, need to be restored, fall. But one day, Jesus is coming back to make all those things new and right again, and I'll follow him, and I'll fear him. And all the way back in Proverbs, I'll look to him for all sorts of wisdom. I'll pray before every decision, and I'll trust him. Got it? All right. So this is a hard thing to learn, to settle down into. Next week, we'll take New Testament texts. Everybody go, ah because you understand those so much better, right? And we'll dive through that process, and then we'll kind of conclude um, our our first round. And I should tell you before I pray this too, um, next week we will um, be passing out a survey, or a survey, not a survey, but an evaluation. We just want to glean from adults, and you, you guys will be able to fill this out for the children, the change that we made for Sunday school hour, 930 um, we just want to know like, what this looks like. How is this going? Do you like it? Do you not like it? We're not saying we're going to listen to all of that information. Just kidding. We want to evaluate it rightly. This was the first change we made. It was a culture shift. 
want to just, how, how is that working? And so we want to evaluate it. And so next week, that'll be a portion of our time together too, is just being able to take that evaluation and ask some questions, respond to them, and, and we'll do it that way. Good? Let me pray for us, and we'll continue to worship together as a family in a little bit here.